Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and this week I'm joined by my friend Sarah Lay, a doula and birth worker, to talk about how the intersection of pregnancy, patriarchy, and our spiritual landscape in Christianity has created all kinds of issues for how we connect with ourselves, with birthing people, with the divine, with each other. We talk about how this common experience of being birthed can can invite us into more deeply engaging with the divine, with our own bodies, and to become more embodied people ourselves, as we're trying to do in this series on patriarchy. We go historically deep in this one, and I'm hoping that we can continue to figure out what the theological ramifications of this conversation are as we continue to embody, because really, we're all just learning along the way. I also want to give a special shout out to our Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. Y'all are amazing, and it's been so great to meet so many of you in our workshops and uh, soon to be happy hours. So I'm so excited about that. We also have our Lent book coming out in just a couple of weeks, so be on the lookout for the pre orders, which won't be like quite pre orders, but pre order enough. I'm so excited to get that out to you again this year. And with all of that, please enjoy this conversation with Sarah Lay. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on and feel like this conversation is both pertinent and important to all people because all people are birthed. So thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Brandy. It's an honor to be here. Well, Sarah, for folks who don't know you, I would love to ask you the same question that you know is coming because I ask it (laughs) every week. Sarah, what does it mean to be you? Okay, I thought about this because I knew it was going to be hard for me to answer this question. Well, first of all, one thing it means to be me is to be part of your community at Reclaiming My Theology, Brandy. So it it feels very special to be on today as a member of that community, as as someone who's like definitely doing a ton of learning. So anyway, just wanted to say that that it really feels special to be here as someone who's been part of this community um, with you and with with other folks. So that's my first little bit. But uh, what does it mean to be me? I was trying to think about what does it mean to be me outside of like the roles that I fill? Mm -hmm. I think that's how I usually think about myself. And so what I came up with is I think a core part of what, what it means to be me is that I love ease. Hmm. I love it in ways that are not so healthy, like to the avoidance of things that are hard. But I also love it in in the ways that it like promotes freedom and space for people and for myself. I love um, making things that are hard or tense or like transitions into places where people can like kind of breathe a little bit Uh or feel like there's space to be who I am, even in the midst of this thing that's hard. Um, or like the the where I feel stuck isn't like the only reality, like mm. there is a path um, out of that. So, and that's kind of where I'm leaning in or learning more about that. I love learning, teaching, explaining, educating, all those sorts of things. I would be a forever student if I could. Um, I mean, I kind of am, but I would like do it professionally, you know, if that was mm-hmm. allowed. Um, I'm an Enneagram 9 middle child, so I'll just let that (laughs) speak for itself. (laughs) And and learning to love myself in that, I think, and just that, particularly like my pace. I think I'm kind of a slow person, and Mm. and I think I used to feel guilty about that, but trying not to anymore. Um, Some of the roles that I fill, I'm a parent. I have two biracial children who are living and two who died before birth. I'm a spouse to a Vietnamese American um, man. I'm a daughter, friend. I'm a white 
cisgender and heterosexual female. My pronouns are she and her. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate Mm -hmm. you bringing so much of yourself. And I think that so much of the intersections of who you are, the roles you fill, and even that like pursuit of ease for folks as you engage with uh, your vocation feels really, really important to me. So I would love if you could describe for folks your sense of vocation in the world. What do you see as your sense of, again, the Christian word calling um, or the (laughs) space that you feel like you embody in the world? Yeah, totally. So definitely that that space of of building or creating ease um, has become part of my vocation. I think I realized it's always been there, but I just didn't have a name for it. Um, And then also around like teaching, creating spaces for people to engage learning and and grow in knowledge. So specifically right now, those I'm a birth doula. So that's for those who don't know, that's basically like a professional birth support person or birth support companion. Um, so I do a, a lot of kind of creating ease or space for people in the midst of hard things um, as a birth doula. That transition into parenthood can be really tricky. Um, I also work part-time for a Christian nonprofit, pretty much just for this season as the team that I'm on walks through a particularly difficult season of change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that, I do feel that calling or vocation to this team. Um, in this place of transition. I appreciate that you name that even as vocation, I think for many of us can only be our job. And you're describing vocation as a commitment to people in a place that might not be ideal. And I think that that is a super valid way of engaging with the world and a place where many of us who get caught in kind of the progressive traps of everything is like right or wrong and like throw ourselves mm-hmm. into binaries often can't make sense of the complicated space in between. So I really appreciate that you name that. Yeah, So today we are going to talk about birth, birthing bodies, pregnancy, and I just want to name on the front end, I don't know exactly where we're going to go, but I want to give some content (laughs) warnings that we will very likely talk about pregnancy loss, mortality rates, probably sexual assault and violence, uh, all all sorts of things. Are there some other content warnings that you might want to add just on the front end, knowing that this is such a tender conversation for so many? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, definitely talking about childbirth. And pregnancy intersects with the things that you mentioned, as well as medical trauma and abuse, obstetric mm-hmm. trauma and abuse, I want to name specifically. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would add to what you what you already said. Yeah. Great. Well, and the irony in our lives is that all of us are birthed, yet both of us, most of us know nothing about the birthing process, what happens to even our own bodies, people that give like birth to our own bodies, And there's a lot of language that gets really twisty in this. So even as we orient ourselves to this conversation about pregnancy and birth, can you give me some like quick tips on how to have this conversation, even how we refer to people who give birth, because that has become such a gendered, exceptionalistic, like idealized kind of picture. So could you give us just some basics of language for those of us who may not be familiar with this conversation? Sure. Yeah, I'm as much as I can in this conversation and and just wanting to say that I'm still very much a learner. I am not going to refer to pregnant people as women or mothers, but um, broadly as pregnant people, people who give birth, birthing people, um, parents, um, postpartum people, gestating people. Uh, And I think, I don't know that we'll talk much about like newborn care or feeding, but I also try to use body feeding um, as well as breastfeeding and chest feeding as terms for um, 
feeding a baby from your own body. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that, um, the, <laughs> though this may come as a surprise to some, um, not all people who give birth are women. Mm-hmm. There are um, there are men who have uteruses, trans men who have uteruses who uh, choose to give birth. And that happens actually, I think probably more than people think, but yes. we just don't hear about it because it's so outside of that kind of idea of, of sort of what it means to be a someone who gives birth. We have this kind of like ultra feminine sort of mother idea that's associated with childbirth. So in an effort to include everyone who gives birth, I try to um, make sure that my language isn't gendered. And there's there's no reason for it to be really, so. Yeah. yeah, and I so appreciate that. and just wanted us to bring that to the conversation, knowing that many of us, especially if we grew up in Christian spaces with hyper binary idealizations of gender, may have only been given language of feminine, mothering, all the things that you're talking about. And so as we have this conversation, one, I'm recognizing that I'm very much a learner in this. And so am owning the vulnerable process of even having a conversation with you in which I might be like, oh, I don't actually even know how to talk about this. And to give other people space to expand our, really our non-gendering in general, because I think that in many ways, again, Tori said this a few weeks ago, the only reason you need to know someone's gender is so you know how to treat them. And so when we can de-gender our language, we actually create space for expansiveness, for and I think that many times we, when we say expansiveness, we're like, expansiveness to exist later. And I'm like, no, we're just acknowledging what is already mm-hmm. happening in the world. Yeah. So this conversation feels important to me for a lot of reasons. There are racial reasons it feels important to me. There are gender reasons. There are mortality reasons it feels important. And I think that part of it for me is just that there has been this idealization of pregnancy for some people in some capacities in Christian space for a long time. And Christians actually do talk a lot about pregnancy and childbirth, but only in really specific ways. And so I would love if we could just start this conversation (laughs) by kind of laying the groundwork of how Christians talk about, theologize, or engage with pregnancy or pregnant people, especially from the pulpit or from our systems and structures. So could you launch us into that? And we can have a little bit of a conversation about some of what we've seen as the landscape for this. Sure. So when you asked me that question, the first thing I thought of actually was my experience as someone going to church after I graduated college. And so I started out as a single woman um, in this kind of rural church and totally felt invisible. Like people would um, greet me like every week as if it was my first time there, like who had, had literally met me like every other time I had been there, you know? Um, and just that's kind of like, and like, I'm very, I'm private, kind of introverted. So I don't know that it was like a terrible experience, but very odd to feel like I, I kind of don't exist here. I'm not a student anymore. Like there's sort of a category for that, uh, like student identity, but I, I was just by myself as a woman. It was very interesting. So then my then boyfriend, now husband, started coming to that church with me occasionally. And it was like this cloaking device that I had been wearing was removed and all of a sudden everybody saw me. Mm. And again, such an odd experience. Now, as an aside, it was a super white church and he is not a white person. So that was its own kind of mm-hmm. bag of worms. But as far as like kind of my experience as a, as a woman, um, just really feeling like, oh my gosh, I am so visible now where I used to be so invisible. 
Um, you know, fast forward, we got married, we're like looking for a church and I felt like this weird, like, okay, well, because we're coming to this place as a unit, we're sort of like valid. Like, even if we're just like checking out the church or whatever, we could kind of like be, there was like a category for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I was pregnant with our first child and giving birth, it was like, it's like the floodgates open. Right. Like I was invited to mom groups. I got to be part of this thing. I had a baby shower. I had a meal train. I mean, all this energy and money and celebration. And it was like, I have arrived. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time, like I'm the main breadwinner of my family. And people were like, so you're going to stay home, right? You know, like, like not a ton of that, but still that like undertone of like, well, now you've arrived at this, like you've given birth, you have achieved the pinnacle of our idea of womanhood. So you will let go of all these other things that make up your identity, right? Like this is who you are. And that was very uncomfortable for me um, as a new, as a new parent. Um, So just to give like a little bit of experience, I think, on your question of like, what is it even like to be someone who could give birth and sort of walk through your adulthood in a church space and specifically white churches? So I want to say that, like, I don't have experience at um, my experience is really like limited to to white churches or mostly white churches. Um, Yeah, and I have some other thoughts, too, but I thought I would start with that uh, little my my little story. Well, yeah. I hear that. And I think in that, it's it's essentially that the biological family is an identity or status marker in church spaces. And there are reasons for that. And there's theology behind that. And there's practices and all sorts of things behind that. But that as particularly folks who give birth, well, I'm going to say I'm going to say women in this case, because we're talking about the church. And that is the category that the church would give this status identity to, that there is this type of transcendent role that occurs when people become when women become pregnant because it is about this like quiverful having <laughs> sure, the yeah. more kids you have the more dedicated it's like the more children the closer to the lord the more you are parenting children for the lord the more you're creating like in my context it was you need to parent or birth to create warriors for god's army like sure. that was like an actual like evangelism concept like the more christian kids there are in the world the more people that can be saved so you reproduce in order to evangelize and so i think that there's things like that that happen but i also think about the ways that we view women in scripture who are giving birth Mm -hmm. one i have never i had never until i you know i'm 31 i had never heard until my late 20s a woman preach about women and pregnancy or pregnancy loss Mm. i had never heard it And what I did hear, however, was women used as object lessons about God's faithfulness Mm -hmm. in relationship to their like faithful praying partners. So it was like, Hannah isn't a person in and of herself who's embodied. She is a person who God is faithful to. And look at how like God is faithful. And Hannah doesn't really, she's just like the object that God's doing God's thing through. Or, you know, we think about like, Sarah and Hagar, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, they are objects that God is working out a divine plan for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the, like the fathers. And so even this kind of binary of like mothers and fathers in scripture was always the men are faithful actors in God's plan, but the women are always these objects that God is working on to further God's mission or practical kind of, I would call it like a Christian capitalistic model of childbirthing into the world. 
Well, I was thinking of, you know, the most famous pregnancy in the Bible, right? Mary. And like, because the other thing about this, this question is that, that like you've talked about before and mentioned, like the nuclear family is lifted up as this like highest ideal, right? Put on this huge pedestal. And so, and therefore like, you know, cisgendered heterosexual women give birth, do it. Like that's your, that's your mission. That's your high, even in like more progressive spaces, even in like quote unquote liberal spaces, it's still that like that fairy tale story. Like, Oh, you're just going to get married. Like, I mean, I I believe, like I believed it. I drink the Kool-Aid. Like it's, it's so deep in us. And at the same time, so it's like, get married, have babies, happily ever after. And at the same time, you're like no talking or education or anything about sex or pleasure, anything other than like penis inside vagina sex is just like not even mm-hmm. like, does it even exist? Like, yeah. and, and I think what's so, and then I think about Mary and the way that Mary's story gets used because she's a virgin to divorce childbirth and pregnancy from pleasure and from mm-hmm. female sexuality. Um, or or sexuality with people with, you know, vaginas and clitorises and vulvas and that sort of thing. So it's just so wild that, that the, it's like they found the, they were like, oh, yes, she's a virgin. <laughs> we don't have to care at all about female sexuality. Like, it's just... Have be- so the the further you can get from, or the more, what's the word I'm trying to say? The closer you can get to Mary, the closer you can get to like, quote unquote, virgin birth or like divorce, divorce from pleasure, devoid of female sexuality, then the more like ideal your, your, I don't know, what's, what am I trying to say? It's like that, that picture of femininity or what a woman should be is like, a baby maker, but no, yes. like, no sexuality, no sensuality. Yes, um, it's everything yeah. is void of sex and pleasure. And the most elevated femininity that can exist in church space is birth without, birth, basically birth without sex, birth without pleasure, yeah. birth without any kind of need for intimacy, birth without context, essentially. Like, mm-hmm. the church does love a contextless birth, like a birth that either they are not responsible for at all, or that fits like God's mission for what family or evangelism mm-hmm. or all of those things should look like. And what it ends up being for me, what I've heard preached is essentially that like pregnancy is this magical thing. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, sure, yeah, I, there's like, I think there's like, I've heard like transcendent experiences of birth, like all of those things. But I think for particularly men who were preaching from the pulpit, the conversation about pregnancy, which is so common and so important in scripture, particularly in the Hebrew texts, there's just so little knowledge about what's actually happening in pregnancy. So it's like someone wasn't pregnant and then they then they had a baby. And right, part of that is the fault of the text that's like, and then, then months later she had the baby and that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think there's a gap that exists even in the text to make space for what happens to someone's body while they are pregnant, the cost mm-hmm. that people pay, the reality of grief and pain and pregnancy loss. And all of that stuff happens in scripture, but in these like one-liners. And because those happen in one-liners, they're taught as one-liners that can be overlooked. And I think that that causes a lot of trauma for folks who are pregnant, wanting to be pregnant, unable to become pregnant in the church because it it 
reduces everything down to a magical experience that just happens that really doesn't just happen for people. Yeah, I wanted to, I did particularly want to name people who deal with infertility or, or trying to get pregnant, but trying to conceive, but, but having trouble and just the incredible amount of pain of being in, in a lot of churches where for, for the reasons that you said that that experience gets totally invalidated or like becomes like a weird, a weird, like prayer request thing. Like my body and my pain is somehow like the fodder for your display of your spirituality. I mean, that's such a cynical view of that. Like I do think people mean well when they want to pray for folks, but there's, uh, yeah, I think that that can feel like such an invisible place to be because because there's so little room for yeah. for what does it mean to be someone who who can't be pregnant or yeah. um, for for whatever reason yeah well yeah and I think that's such an important concept in general even outside of and and within the ways that this falls within this conversation around disability that mm-hmm. prayer and like the ways that the church invisibilizes folks with disabilities that there's a way that everything gets spiritualized in a way that creates no space for actual processing, grieving, having community in a process that is deeply painful and deeply traumatizing. And I think that there, the kind of toxic positivity of the church will slap platitudes on all of those experiences and say like, God's planned this, or like, God won't give you more than you can handle, or like, just trust in faith. And I'm like, okay, well, that's coming typically from male pastors with families, like who cannot empathize or who choose not to empathize, even if they've had those experiences in their own lives with people who are suffering and in pain. And so I think that pregnancy, infertility, pregnancy loss, all kind of fall into a category that gets put at arm's distance. Mm -hmm. And that is either so normal it's not talked about or so invisible that it's not talked about. And either way, people are left kind of alone to process grief and pain. Yeah. And it's the grief around infertility, and I don't have experience with infertility but I do have experience with pregnancy loss and the grief around those things is really complicated because there's, it's like this invisible sort of grief because there was no one else knew <laughs> like, the, you know, like if you're pregnant, maybe you have a sense of, of sort of knowing with your, your unborn child, or maybe you don't, that's not everyone's experience. Um, but But then there's this like sort of loss and disappointment or just the incredible disappointment of infertility that it's there's no manual for how to deal with that kind of grief and it feels very lonely because you're not i don't know that there's not this person that died and then you kind of like people can sort of say like oh they were so great or i miss them too or something like that i don't i don't know like i know i know all grief is hard and, and complicated and nuanced um but it yeah it's it's an interesting place to be when you lose a child or can't conceive I think that's so difficult and in a way that I know I can't understand and I think what I feel what I see often is that the like it's like grief upon grief and then pain and like asinine conversations on asinine conversations because the conversation about pregnancy loss or infertility gets co-opted by the religious right to talk about abortion and so I think that that conversation becomes so um intertwined that people are, their bodies are politicized. Everything is used as like a a tool to control people who give births bodies more, to control women's bodies more. And, and I mean, both of those things 
both distinctly and in their fullness. And so I can I can just see the ways that that isn't just like a religious or an interpersonal conversation, but it becomes a very political one too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up abortion because there's a whole other like arena of of loss, maybe grief or maybe not grief, depending on someone's desires around abortion that the church absolutely ignores because of uh, this idea that like, well, you've committed the more the number one American mortal sin. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious about that. But but so therefore, like, you cannot speak about it. You may not process whatever complex emotions you might be feeling about your pregnancy or your desire to not be pregnant or the abortion that you got or and regardless of how you feel about it or what you think about it it's so taboo it's so like put a big x on talking about abortion in churches so no one can process what they're feeling about that or how they're how does that intersect with their spirituality how does their pregnancy their desire to be pregnant or not pregnant intersect with who they believe God to be and how they experience yes. the divine in their life. We can't even begin to ask those questions because of the way that the church has held up the nuclear family and demon and particularly white cisgendered heterosexual nuclear family and, and demonize every other form yeah. of family building um, or just existing in community in the world. Yeah. And like the kind of, and I'm going to do this, say this intentionally, the conservative logic of it all does not follow through to the end. Like conservative people's desire for people to be birthed is never matched by their desire for people to live or to live fully. And so I I think that this has come in, and I want us to talk a little bit about the history of birthing and pregnancy, specifically because, well, one, I think most of us are ignorant. And for people who either do not want to give birth or cannot give birth or are not birthing people, there's a lot of reasons we should care about this conversation. And as I, I'm a very, very political person. Um, I don't think most people realize the extent to which I am like consistently inundated with conversations about national political experiences. And when the Supreme Court had a vacancy and Amy, Amy Comey Barrett was being put into was putting up was put up for consideration and all of that drama happened around her and they were wanting to put on a pro-life justice there was this wild experience at her confirmation that happened that I think this author Robin Givens put really succinctly so I just want to read this quote from her because I think it actually helps us to dive into some of the history around all of this stuff and the deep intersections that this has with race and conservative politics uh Givens says when Trump promised to nominate a woman to fill the seat left vacant by Ginsburg, that decision was greeted with a nod and polite applause. During Justice Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation in 2020, conservatives repeatedly referenced her seven children. They marveled at her ability to balance her maternal responsibilities with her professional accomplishments, and they oozed admiration for her devotion to the family. They planted her atop a pedestal of divine femininity, a gl- kind of glorification that rarely shines on black women. And for me, that quote helped me to center a little bit in this conversation that birthing actually is not necessarily just about nuclear family. It is inherently about whiteness. It's about this idealization of whiteness. And so I would love if you could jump us into some of the history that got us to Mm -hmm. this point where this kind of quote can be so relevant in our lives. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a great quote. Um, 
Yeah, so I will not speak on the history of childbirth in any place other than this current land that we live on, that we call the United States of America, because I don't know anything about that other stuff. So throughout history and in the world, there's been lots of different ways that um, birth and people who give birth have been treated, you know, used, not used, etc. I don't know about those things, so I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about uh, the white European empire on this land and how childbirth and birthing people have been used. So there's kind of the... Actually, I want to read a quote too, if you don't mind, Brandy. Please. Because I felt like it was it just put this so well. So this quote comes from a book called Reproductive Justice and Introduction. It's by Loretta Ross and Ricky Sollinger. And this is kind of talking about how white European men used control of women's bodies and childbirth. And I say women's bodies there intentionally too, because there was no category for someone who could give birth who wasn't a woman kind of in the in the minds of those men. Anyway, how they used those things to build the empire that they wanted on this land. And so the quote says, from the white settlers point of view, population growth among Europeans was crucial for establishing, developing, enlarging and defending their land claims, um. their accumulation of wealth, and their political control of the settled territories. From their point of view as well, removal of native population that obstructed European settlement was mandatory, as was rapid population growth among enslaved Africans who provided the hard labor necessary to realize the full range of European male goals. And I feel like that quote encapsulates this reality of of what European white European empire building on this land looked like, which was removal of native people um, by lots of means, but one of which was by suppressing um, their ability to give birth and particularly their ability to parent their children. So we're talking about like removing native children from their families, sending them to boarding schools, etc. To like kind of remove the nativeness from them. At the same time, building this realization that, well, to have any validity on our claims to this land, we have to sort of show that there's a lot of us here. So, okay, like white people, white women, like you better, you better pop out those babies like nothing. Like that is who you are. Like that description that you read of of, um, Amy Barrett is so similar to a description I read of it kind of an idealized, like kind of pre-revolutionary war America woman. It was like, you are the, this like pure, pristine sort of pinnacle of womanhood with this like brood of, of future male white voters I don't know like it's all like these sons like it's like the sons and she's like the mother of the sons of America yeah I think that's actually the quote that I I saw that is a quote Um, that I've heard before (laughs) yeah so anyway and I was like wow that's so similar to the to what you just read but and then at the same time so removal and suppression of native people increasing the population of white people and European people and then at the same time enslaved people, enslaved Africans, there was this push during the times of slavery for those folks, for black women, black people who could give birth, to give birth as much as possible because Mm -hmm. it was literally an economic resource. It's horrific 
um, the, the history of the way black birthing bodies have been used as an economic resource. Um, and because it was the labor to, to like kind of enact all these goals. So that's like, that's where we started. There's no, no one wins really. I guess maybe, maybe the white European dudes that had the power sort of won, I guess yeah. in that, but there's no freedom for women. I think like, there's no comparison obviously between the experience of white women and the experience of any of native women or black women. Like there's, there's no comparison at all. And yet there's still this sense of bondage to yeah. the, the whim and will of white men. There's this really interesting thing. So after like the Declaration of Independence and, you know, the, the United States of America is sort of established as a country. And so resourced white women sort of took that, like, you know, what is it like, like freedom, pursuit of happiness. They were like, I think that applies to us as well. And so there was actually a push towards like preventing pregnancy or like uh, birth control uh access to abortion and just different you know given the technology that they had the medical mm -hmm. knowledge just like whatever was available that sort of pushed towards towards that knowledge and those those views were being spread through the mail like the u.s postal service and so congress as a response to that a direct response to white women not wanting to get pregnant uh, enacted the comstock law which allows the government to surveil the mail in order to root out quote-unquote obscene materials what that meant was that no women were like you couldn't mail someone a pamphlet about how to prevent pregnancy um, or how to like get an abortion safely um that was that was considered quote-unquote obscene and and at the same time gynecology and obstetrics are growing as like medical professions held by white men. Yeah. So the Comstock law effectively put control, legal control of like obstetric and gynecological care and knowledge into the hands of doctors. Mm. That was the only legal source of that kind of information. And at the time, those were all European men, white uh -huh. men. Um, so it's interesting, right? Like how, you know, women were like, okay, maybe we can also have freedom. And then it's like, no, 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 no. Well, yeah. And it's interesting that freedom in all of the examples that you're giving is political and it's economic. It's, totally. and even as I think about like black women in these spaces, like, and, and there's like, we can put dollar values on human bodies because of the history of the United States. And I was seeing some research, this was probably like 10 years ago when I was doing the research on it, but that there was like an incentivization by slaveholders to rape their slaves to create more humans at the value of about $30,000 a person in in value in like 2011, I think is what the, is as after the inflation was calculated. And so when we talk about these conversations about birth and pregnancy, we are talking about white intergenerational wealth that still exists because yes. of those things. And so even as you talk about control being put into the hands of doctors, that the through line really is that white men and white patriarchal control of the government, of human bodies, and of economic systems is at the heart of this. And it's not really a conversation about morality or Christianity or theology, but that 
Christianity and theology were the main engine to create the pristine whiteness and maleness of quote unquote America and to move that forward. And so I, I just am fascinated by the the ways that Christianity is the Trojan horse in which white men get economic and political and social control over other bodies. Yes, exactly. Right. Like using the word obscene to describe the the like information about birth control is totally a play on oh is it is it like godly or is yeah. it like evil is it you know depraved or something like that well what i what i, I think there is something to be said about uh i think there's a way that many of us see the current church's engagement with culture wars as being like a new thing under the Trump administration or whatever. But the church has been fighting culture wars for control over how people learn people's bodies and how people can live, particularly that aren't Christian white men for a long time. And so I even hear kind of the ring in that word obscene Mm -hmm. to to the culture wars that we're currently experiencing that are far more comical now because it's about like, doesn't Eminem get to be sexy because we want to like be super binary about gender. (laughs) But I think that those things have consequences long term when the larger message is those people out there, usually people with marginalized identities, are coming for the foundation of what God wants the United States to be, which, right, is wrought with anti-Semitism and assuming that the U.S. is the chosen or is the promised mm-hmm. land and totally. that white people are the chosen people. And so all of these conversations about birth dovetail with, like, every kind of oppression you can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, like, that's true because the... One of the best ways to build an empire is to control birth. Mm. You have to have a population and, and you can control who that population is and how big they are by controlling birth. And, what's, and this is where it gets wild, Brandy, because cis men can only ever look on from the outside when it comes to pregnancy and childbirth. There is no, if you don't have a uterus, you can have no embodied knowledge of childbirth. And I mean, that's just a fact. That's okay. Like whatever it is, what it is. But I think because, because birth and pop, like control of populations is such an incredibly powerful tool for empire building. And that control lives with people who have uteruses, like inherently in their bodies who they give birth to, who they allow to be the the parent, the father of their child, who provides the DNA, uh, whether to do, to give birth or not to give birth, like, because without kind of like a lot of the controls that we've already been talking about, like that, that power rests entirely with people who have uteruses, most of whom, right, like those historically, those people are women, those are not cisgendered men. Trans people have always existed. That's not what I meant to say there. But but right, like that kind of category, what we think of as being women have held that power. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge, huge threat to patriarchy. Like, if, if cis men do not control populations, there is no patriarchy. Yes. <laughs> and And so you have to, you have to control the bodies of people who give birth if you want to control an empire or build an empire. I just think that's Absolutely. true. Absolutely. Well, and it feels true, too, because, you know, Dr. Sarah Moon said in a previous episode that uh, essentially that patriarchy is most threatened by things that decentralize cis men's ability to be at the center or to be involved, mm-hmm. because it, it renders their political and social control useless. So two queer women in a relationship with each other doesn't need a cis man 
two gay men doesn't need the control of like heteronormative structures that create family in a certain type of nuclear family sort of way. And I think in the same way, birthing bodies threaten patriarchy because they don't need cis men. And I think that if cis men are not needed or are not getting to control what it even means to be needed or to have control over space, they spiral and spiral (laughs) and spiral and go on these absurd political diatribes that... (laughs) Again, I just can't get over it. It's like Tucker Carlson in the sexy M&M for me feels like the pinnacle of like how audacious it is when white cis men start to lose cultural control. And then in the name of Christianity, you're like, candy needs to be sexy now. And so I just think that there's like, all again, all of it just feels like it, it creates such an absurd caricature of why cis men feel like they need to be in control. It's very, very weird to me. Oh man, you got me on that one, Brandy. In the name of Christianity, the great man that needs to be sexy. So stupid. What have we become? Oh my gosh. And it's almost a natural extension of this horrifically violent history you're talking about is now we're at sexy M&Ms. And I'm just like, okay, well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to laugh because it's just so, it's so tragic otherwise. Really, really is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. In the topic of history, I don't know if we're moving off that, but before we do, I do want to point out, I want to talk about a couple of things. One is the history of Black women midwives, granny midwives, um, in the United States. Before the field of obstetrics, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but before the field of obstetrics developed as kind of a male profession in the medical field, people gave birth with the help of usually other women, but particularly in the United States and the South, um, even white babies were were born by black midwives um, mm-hmm. or the, the white mothers were helped in their, in their childbirth process by black women. Um, and so that history is really beautiful. There's a, there's such a powerful legacy of, right. Even in the, in the face of just the extreme oppression of black female bodies of this, this, I don't know, just like how in that space, black women really uh, kind of took their own power and said, no, like that you can do what you like. Yes, I don't have control over a lot of things that you do to my body. But on the other hand, like I'm going to take what I have and, and create the most life and the most beauty and the most health that I can with it. And that's really the legacy of of those black granny midwives who were pretty systematically eradicated and because of the threat that white medical people, men felt from their expertise that like there wouldn't be, Oh, people will go see that granny midwife and then they won't come to my hospital and I won't get their money. So they were, so again, as using Christianity as sort of the Trojan horse, right. They were seen as quote unquote, witches. Yeah. Or like unclean, those kinds yeah. of words applied to them, so that so that particularly white women wouldn't go see midwives anymore. Well, yeah, and then the danger of white supremacy specifically is that we then get the mammy trope of like black mm-hmm. women who are happy enslaved people who are nursing the children oh, yeah. of white women, and that trope gets placed over this like expertise and like really medical experience and excellence of black women who are helping people give birth, and it gets replaced with this actually, we can continue to treat black people in these horrific ways, because look at the happy slave narrative. And I think Mm -hmm. that that mammy caricature of like, 
every every older black woman is everyone's grandmama or auntie even if they aren't black or aren't in their community and like mm-hmm. black women are all the stereotyping about black women happens and so i think that it becomes extra tragic when we start to engage with the history of uh, compulsive sterilization of black women, yes. particularly between, well, it, it depends on when you start talking about the history, but between 1920 and 1964 and then 1964 post-desegregation and mm-hmm. like the early or late 90s, there's all of this kind of compulsory or forced sterilization that's happening as the opioid ec- epidemic is happening mm-hmm. and causing black women to be incarcerated or hospitalized and in both situations are being given uh, well, there's the history is super bleak in so many different ways. But yeah. in my research about it over the years, the things and I just named these because I think it's important to name mm-hmm. what's happened to black women, yes. specifically because what happens to the most marginalized of us harms all of us. But right, mm-hmm. black women would get incarcerated and be given sterilizations without their consent. Yes. Uh, black women who were hospitalized or given other procedures like there's there's uh, documentation of black women who went to get their appendix taken out and were sterilized in the process that they would be given either it would happen without their consent at all or while they were under anesthetics and unable to consent to a procedure were given documentation to sterilize them and so mm-hmm. that kind of population control around black folks specifically yes isn't just an enslavement tactic but is one that still exists today in some yes. southern states and has been and i say in some southern states in like the most like yeah. it's hard because people will be like, oh my God, you're just creating some kind of like narrative. But like forcing someone to be sterilized does not mean that you just like drug them. And it means that you offer people who are addicted to drugs money to be sterilized. It means, yes. and all of that is a part of this kind of birthing conversation. Yes. And so even as you talk about this experience of black women being really these incredible caretakers and bringers of life Mm -hmm. the u.s has done everything that it can to bring death to black women and to black populations as the antithesis of that conversation yes yeah yeah and added on to that that like the ways that welfare is used or like government um like like government money for around poverty is also used to control population control particularly control uh, black population like the, you know, oh, if, if you have more, if you don't have more babies, you can get more money. I don't know. There's like, all it's all, I don't understand all the complicated ways that all those legal things play out, but there's, there was an intentionally created stereotype of black unfit mothers. Yes. That is used to intentionally by European empire to intentionally limit the population of black people along with all the other ways that that happens currently right now still today this is not history this is right now yeah which we see a lot with latinx folks crossing the border and the stereotypes that like even i grew up hearing about like oh latino women are coming to have their kids in the u.s Mm -hmm. and have a bunch of babies so they can't be kicked out like that was the rhetoric i was given that socialized me to have certain views of brown birthing bodies yeah yeah exactly the other thing i wanted to say before we move on from history is um, just the, I wanted to mention the development of the field of obstetrics. Um, there's a white man named uh, Sims, Dr. Sims, J. Marion Sims. Um, he's been in the news in the past few years because there was a statue of him removed recently. He's considered the father, father of modern gynecology because he developed um, 
the speculum, which is the what if you're a person with a vagina or uterus, you've probably and you've had a pap smear or anything like that, um, you've experienced a speculum. Uh, and he developed a procedure to repair um, the fistula, the vesicovaginal fistula, which is a pretty awful birth injury that um, people can face. And those are both great things, I guess, that he did. Um, however, he was a slaveholder and uh, used the bodies of the women that he enslaved to develop those procedures. And I want to say the three of their names that we know, Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, um, they, they don't know their last names. But just, again, just to say that um, even, right, like there's this white dude who's given credit for, you know, all this gynecological expertise that the, that was born off of the bodies of black women and and people will say oh well he helped them or he fixed their injuries or whatever and that that just doesn't matter because yeah, the truth is that they were enslaved and they had no choice yeah. um, so i wanted to say that before we moved on to and just recognize and honor their their memory those ancestors yeah. i really appreciate that and I also just think that as we start to talk about, um, and again, we'll we'll talk a little bit here in a second about the kind of real world modern implications of this history right now. And and I kind of just want to start us off in that conversation again with going back to because again, I, there is no way to have the theological without having the political conversation about this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is how the nuclear family model that the church has fallen in love with maybe. <laughs> You know, like has has really chosen to have be its primary thing is part of theologically why many Christians do not care about climate change. Um, because we know that one of the major contributors to climate change is overpopulation. And there's a way that because Christians have built the entire foundation of what it means to be human on birthing, mm-hmm. that to care about climate change is to fly in the face of the narrative that producing more bodies in a very capitalistic, economic, labor force building kind of way is actually terrible for the planet that we live on. And that isn't mm-hmm. to say that like people shouldn't give birth. I think people should think about the ethics of giving birth in a world that is Definitely. overpopulated. And we don't ever, I've never heard a sermon about that before. Please, someone tell me, so, someone give me a sermon about the ethics of childbirth in an overpopulated planet. But I just think that there's ways that Christians don't just dislike the idea of climate change because of creationism. Mm -hmm. It's because of this patriarchal obsession with the modern family or like Mm -hmm. the nuclear family that makes it impossible to have that conversation. Because if you take the logic all the way to the end, we would have to ask different questions about how we talk about birth. Yeah, that's so true. I haven't thought that much about climate change, but you are totally right about that. It's so connected. (laughs) David Attenborough's Life on Our Planet is like the easiest entry point to that conversation because yeah. he's essentially like this is not yeah. good let me rephrase i've thought about climate change i haven't thought particularly about its connection with birth and particularly the white church obsession with the nuclear family. yeah david that attenborough doesn't talk about the church but i do believe that that is <laughs> he talks about overpopulation i'm like that is a theological implication totally because <laughs> i'm a caricature of myself <laughs> Yeah, so can we talk a little bit about the kind of modern implications of that? And then we'll talk a little bit about what it means to, yeah, yeah, engage differently. Sure. So I think just continuing, um, continuing the conversation about like the implications on black people. Currently, well, first, first of all, 
The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed country. By by far, I think we're like double our next closest country, which I think might be France. We're definitely more than double the the, the maternal mortality of Canada. Um, and that's just, that's kind of taking all people who give birth into account. And so, oh, just to be clear, maternal mortality refers yes. to um, people who uh, people who give birth or who are pregnant, who die um, during pregnancy, during childbirth, or within the first year of giving birth due to complications related to the pregnancy or the, mm-hmm. the birth. So um, it's important that it includes that year after birth because that also includes people who die due to complications from like postpartum depression or anxiety, things like that. Um, not just like maybe like a physical illness, it can mm-hmm. also include mental illness. So um, that's including all people who give birth in the United States. We have a very high maternal mortality rate compared to the rest of the world. For black people who give birth in the United States, that number is three times higher than for white people who mm-hmm. give birth. And that's, the, it's a direct result of all of the things that we've been talking about, Brandy. This way that like, after slavery ended and black people were no longer like the kind of economic resource for plantation building or that kind of thing, there were just law after law after policy after policy after you know stereotype for stereotype to try and intentionally minimize the population of black people on this country and so there's an incredible amount of racism built into the whole medical system but particularly in gynecology and obstetrics and that plus just the reality of what it means to live in a body that's bombarded constantly by racism and bigotry and white supremacy means that black women are way more likely to have premature birth. Uh Black people who give birth are way more likely to have a premature birth. They're way more likely um, to experience severe complications, to have high level of intervention. So that means like kind of a, a medical person sort of coming in and managing the birth in some way mm-hmm. the rates of cesarean birth so that's like a surgical birth are, are a lot higher for black people that give birth and it's just tragic i mean it's literal death we're talking mm-hmm. about like literal literally like people dying because of the way that patriarchy and racism have wrecked havoc on mm-hmm. all people who give birth and particularly black women native women yeah latinx asian yeah yeah, and I think as we even talk about Native women, there, there's a way that even, and again, the tr- we have to, I'm, I'm going to have to do this someday, and I just, I need to do way more research, but thinking about adoption, yeah. because adoption becomes this, another tool and arm of patriarchy that is used to dismantle mm-hmm. communities of color, um, particularly right now, there are all of these court cases going on around adopting Native children to dismantle tribal sovereignty laws. And so it's not just like an abstracted thing that's mm-hmm. happening. It's a choiceable series of political yeah. ideologies and legislation that has put itself at the center of a lot of Christian political leanings. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that we need to do better. Um, there's a podcast called This Land, uh, hosted by Rebecca Nagel, a First Nations person who talks about that so if people want to know more about like the adoption intersection of this like patriarchal violence 
that's a really good place to start. She's very, very, very good. That's great, Brandy. I'm glad you brought up adoption. And we need to do way more with it. I just know that. (laughs) I just am like, I'm not going to act like I know enough right now to speak clearly to it. So, but I think it's important to name. Yeah, it is. I think the reality too, you know, going back to your question about present, our present reality. Another reality that's the result of things we've already talked about is that there's a very high level of distrust in our country of any birth that happens outside of the hospital. Mm. That's, um, you can trace that back to the, the kind of dismantling of black midwifery. Um, and, and there's other reasons too, but the idea that birth should happen in hospitals under the control of white men, um, means that in our country, yeah, it's, it's you're seen as kind of strange or maybe like sort of deficient if you don't want to give birth in the hospital. And the truth is that in other developed countries, that's just not the case. Like um, midwives and out of hospital birth is really uh, incorporated a lot more seamlessly. I, I can't really speak with expertise about other countries, but a lot more seamlessly into like what is sort of considered normal or average birth care. Like, yeah oh, you can give birth with a midwife at home or in this birth center. Or if you, you need extra help from um, from a hospital, then you can come to the hospital and we will like, give you the extra medical care that you need. Right? There's this sense of partnership that really does not exist in the United States to our detriment. Because at the same time, we have a huge lack of obstetricians, gynecologists, and medical uh, care providers for people who give birth, which wouldn't... Th- you could do a lot towards solving that problem by creating more pathways for midwives and for birth to happen outside of the hospital, more like accepted, legalized, you know, kind of like mainstream sort of pathways for birth to happen out of hospital. So it it's weird because people are sort of you're like shooting yourself in the foot a little bit because it's like, oh, no, you can't give birth out of the hospital, but we don't have enough people here to take care of you. Yes. <laughs> And then, like, there's like all those studies that are like rates of hospitalizations, like stress in hospitals contributes to like far more painful birthing yeah. experiences mm-hmm. for people or less natural birthing experiences. And so even like the, for how much the church idealizes like the beginning, natural things, like mm-hmm. how much the church loves the word organic to describe like <laughs> all sorts of things. Yeah. There, there's nothing about childbirth that gets normalized mm-hmm. in its most like organic form. And, and this isn't to demonize hospitals in any way, but it's more to say that like we have a lot of studies that say that there's significant issues that can happen for people who don't necessarily need to be at a hospital to give birth. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I do, I do want to say is just to, to not use the word natural to describe different ways of getting birth, giving mm. birth, that, that giving birth through, cesarean or whatever is also like a that's also natural there's yeah. a yeah just that thank word you. can have some value associated with it that absolutely can be har- sort of harmful but thank you I'll work um, you don't have to language. include that in the recording if you don't want to but that is, oh you know, no i think it's you. great yeah. for me to be <laughs> learning in real time i think it's important that we learn how to engage with our errors and i'm gonna yeah engage with that in my own lexicon yeah but you're right about the reality that people could be giving birth outside of the hospital and that there are ways that being in the hospital in and of itself creates the conditions that then require a higher level of intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and like 
care management. And and the truth is, like a like a cesarean is a major surgery. Yeah. So there's and then all the risks that come with any surgery, right? Like the of infection of prolonged healing of you know like you're cutting into muscle like this and so again like not to there's no there's no value i think i just want to say like for people who've had a cesarean birth or whatever like there's no there's no value less or or anyway you give birth right you you've given birth you're that's valid and valuable um and yet just like the high the incredible amount of like suffering potentially that could be avoided uh, i think that's what gets me and And that those then, if you have one cesarean in our country, there's going to be a ton of pushback if you want to give birth vaginally again after that. Yeah. It's just, anyway. It's like a whole well, and I think that, that, that the tie for me is that the continued control on what people who give birth can do or how they can give mm-hmm. consent is limited by the options that they believe are valid. And so I think that part yeah. of our obsession with hospital is hospital births is part of a lack of being able to fully consent to how we might mm-hmm. want to give birth. And so I think that 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 becomes part of the issue for me is the ideological, not just like the practical. And that yeah. when people are not given options, they cannot make the choices for themselves. They like are mm-hmm. they cannot consent fully to choices that they don't have all the information for. And so I think yeah. that that kind of conveyor belt in a single direction should give us pause. Yeah. So so as we have this conversation, right, this is a theology podcast, and some people might be like, what the fuck does this have to do with God, mm-hmm. with the divine, <laughs> with our experience of our spirituality? So can you please talk to me about, yeah, what does this have to do with our spirituality, our experience with God, our embodied experiences as people who give birth or who do not? Yeah, okay, so besides the fact that we should care about the death of Black people who give birth... Um, and their children. Um, and besides the fact that we should care about all of that history, which I think listeners and people part of your the our MT community already know that, um, I do think that the main way that that I'd love to offer people for that is that connection with childbirth and pregnancy for for a lot of us who exist. I think you've talked about this on a previous podcast, but for a lot of us exists kind of in this space where we're sort of always slightly or more than slightly dissociated from our bodies. Kind of we've inherited from our Greek forefathers this idea that we ought to be, we ought to separate our bodies from our minds or our hearts or whatever. Um, That idea that the body is sort of bad in some way. And I think in pregnancy and childbirth, for a lot of people who experience that in the West, it's one of the first times where you really see how deeply connected the the body and the mind and the heart and those things all kind of come to the fore. Um, so I think for people who who have been pregnant, there's an invitation to to lean into that or to kind of consider that as they process that experience. Like, what, what was it like to be in my body as I grew a child and gave birth or didn't give birth to a living child? That, that's also a, a place of connection. And I think as we do that, we become connected to, to God in that way, to a God who is deeply embodied um, and, and lived kind of this full mind heart body experience um in in the flesh through jesus right there's this there's this invitation to identity to identify with with an embodied god um i think for 
for those of us who maybe will become pregnant at some point, there's like a, like, as you do that, or if and when you do that, to keep that in mind, like to, to use that pregnancy or that childbirth as a, as an avenue to connect to God. Um, and for those of us who, who may not want to, or be able to be pregnant, or just won't ever be pregnant, um, I still think that our connection with people who give birth can give us a window into what it means to be fully present in a body. Um, and so I'd love to give one example for that. And uh, I want to talk about the hormone oxytocin. Um, and I think uh, you've had someone on the podcast talk about oxytocin before. I think it was Aaron Corey. But, um, and doulas love to talk about oxytocin because it's magical. Um, and so oxytocin is the the hormone that lives in your body that produces the contractions that like cause the baby to come out, right? It's also a bonding hormone that's secreted anytime you feel an intimate connection with, with another being. So like during sex, during like an intimate conversation with a friend, bonding between families or parents and childs, your brain and body gets flooded with oxytocin. Um, and oxytocin is a really interesting hormone because it, it's, um, it hates fear. So oxytocin is a love and bonding hormone, but it, your body won't secrete it if you feel afraid. But it's the only way that the baby's going to get out of your body, like uh, physiologically, like unless the doctor opens, opens you um, surgically. But so there's this way that this hormone that has a direct impact on the physical process of birth, like literally pushing the baby out, can't do what it needs to do unless the person giving birth feels safe doesn't feel threatened, um, isn't, isn't kind of filled up with fear or anxiety. And our bodies are amazing. And so we can sort of overcome a lot of that. You know, it's not like a hard and fast line, like, oh, no, I feel afraid. I won't be able to give birth. Like, that's not how it works. But there is this connection, this really beautiful connection between this hormone that, that pushes the baby out and what's happening emotionally and spiritually inside the person. Um, and I think for many of us, we, we just don't have an experience like that with our bodies and our souls being so deeply connected. And there's this sort of window into that when you give birth. The other thing I really want to say about embodiment connected to childbirth is that you, we all still exist in the bodies that our birth parent gave birth to. And, and I think there is an invitation to lean into, okay, what did that body go through? And we might not know all of the details about our birth, and I think that's okay, but you can sort of learn, like, what happens during pregnancy? What happens when someone gives birth? Do, do I know what my birth was like? And there's an invitation, I think, to offer kindness to our to that very first body. I mean, we still have that body, but kind of that baby body that that grew inside our parent and was birthed in whatever way we came to be birthed. And to hold the love that was present there, maybe the trauma that was present there, maybe the hope that was present or the pain that was present, kind of that whole gamut of experiences. And to, to say like, that happened to this body that I still live in. Um, and I don't have like, I'm not like an embodiment coach or, and I haven't, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I haven't done like a ton of stuff with that, but I, I, I offer to people, I think just as an invitation, as something to explore, um, what, 
what was it like to be in my body when I was given birth to? And how, how can I hold with kindness um, that experience that I had? Um, That's so good. Well, I wonder if we were able to do that, if we would be able to more readily and quickly offer ourselves kindness and tenderness in the bodies that we exist in now. And I think that for many of us who were taught, like we were given like verses about Paul, who's like, I basically mutilate my body into submission. Like I, like all of this stuff around our bodies that is so violent and so disembodied and so troubling, or if it is embodied, it's only embodied in the negative. And so I think that invitation to even going back to our birth experiences, even as abstract as that might sound to many folks, offers us an invitation to say like, how would we, I think it's really important. Like when we hear people say like, would you say to your friend, what you're saying to yourself? Would you treat your friend like you treat yourself? And I think that we can look back at our past selves and say, with a lot of kindness, like that we were doing the best we could, that we experienced things that were really wild Mm -hmm. or painful or deeply embodied and to make sense of those things, even if they are painful or hard or joyful or good or exciting, like I think that that's a really beautiful invitation. Yeah. And then I think that invitation, as you talk about oxytocin, feels so significant too, because I think that so many of us never connect to others because we are afraid. Yeah. We don't connect to ourselves. We don't connect to the divine. We don't connect to people around us, even our intimate partners and friends and like our families and people that we know love us because we are afraid. And I think that many of us are too afraid to engage with our fear. Yeah. And so I think that even yeah. that invitation through the lived experience embodied experience of birthing people gives us an invitation to engage with fear in our lives in a different way that i think if we were to is a i don't know any other word to use like weapon against patriarchy that seeks to disembody (laughs) us and control us and keep us from experiencing intimacy because intimacy is the most like inefficient thing for a capitalistic society yeah yeah well, Sarah, is there anything that you want to add or anything that you'd like to plug as we close out today? Yeah, I think I want to, I, uh, before I say what I want to plug, I want to ex- really explicitly talk about the importance of um, childbirth education and that not just like when you're pregnant and then you like go to that hospital class and they teach you like, you know, the stages of labor. I mean, that's really important too, but, but kind of a deep um, understanding of what happens in childbirth education. And I want to, I want to give two really good reasons for that. One is what we just talked about, which is that we were all born. And so there is, I think, a it's a, a gift to ourselves and to our bodies and our connection to our bodies to, to understand to the best that we can what happened to us when we were born. Um, so that's a great reason to, to understand what goes on inside of a person's body um, when they're pregnant, what happens to the, the fetus, how all the, you know, all the parts work. Um, and the second reason is that one of the major impacts of patriarchy on childbirth that we are currently still dealing with is like all the knowledge about birth was centralized with white male doctors and hospital systems. And that means that when people come to the hospital to give birth, you, there's a sense of uh, a real, kind of real sense of helplessness. Like, I don't, I don't really know what, what all my options are, or, or I just have to trust that you will let, lead me the right way, like doctor, nurse, person, that. Um, and nothing again, I, I, I have great things to say about doctors and nurses. I think they try their best, but there is this sense that it's so ripe for abuse um, in the wrong hands, right? Where, where that, that knowledge is just held in the person that has the power in that situation, that the pregnant people coming in, um, 
are really vulnerable to uh, to being manipulated or to um, kind of losing their sense of autonomy in that space. So I think a great antidote to that is to just spread out that knowledge as far as possible. Um, so people who are pregnant and giving birth, I should definitely understand what's happening in their bodies and what, what it means to give birth, specifically what it means to give birth in a hospital, what all the options are, what all the interventions are. Um, but beyond that, I think we should all know what happens to a body in birth, because it just means that that, that knowledge isn't held um, kind of and, and then held over other people in such a, such a risky sort of way, I guess, is what I would say. Um, That's so good. Yeah. And it makes birthing more like a partnership between people who are interacting mm-hmm. with the birth experience rather than a, another hierarchy that we put in place based on positional authority of like expert people who are more lauded by our society because of, honestly, I think in, in some ways money and capitalism and like the money that comes along exactly. with being a doctor. And so I just think, again, I, I have no issue there either, but I think that I love this image of birthing as a further deepening of partnership because I think so much of engaging and disengaging with patriarchy is learning what partnership and mutuality look like. And when we have and lean into more mutuality, both in our relationship with each other and our relationship with the divine, I think it creates that space for intimacy, for connection, for joy, for freedom and liberation that comes from that kind of intimacy that we don't get in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. That that's exactly, you just spoke my heart, Brandy. (laughs) Yeah. I, so to continue to answer your question related to that, um, what would I like to plug? Um, I am I am a birth doula, as I said at the beginning, and I think for me what that means is fostering that partnership that you just talked about. Um, m- my heart in this work is to see all the people who are involved in bringing a baby into the world um, feel like we're on the same team to make this the best possible experience. And so I love working with people who are pregnant, um, giving birth to know, have that knowledge, right? Like know what are all my options? What can I expect from this? What are kind of all the possibilities? Um, and then see like, what do you want out of this experience and how can we help that be a reality? Um, and then in the moment when that's happening, you know, and I'll, there's tons of stuff that comes up that you don't expect when you're in labor and giving birth and and to be someone who can sort of help with how do we continue to kind of make the most of this experience, to have the most sense of autonomy, of ownership and agency, partnership, teamwork with the with the care providers as we can. And and then a space to really process what all of that experience means. So with that said, I am definitely taking clients. Um, I live in Tacoma, Washington, so if people are located in the Puget Sound and are looking for a doula or know someone who might be, I would love to work with you. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that. I also take clients that don't live near me. It looks a little bit different. Do some kind of virtual remote support, um, but I've had great experience with that, so that's also an option. You can find me for those things on my website, uh, saralaybirthwork.com. I'm also on Instagram at Sarah Lay Birthwork, and I think those will be in the show notes, hopefully, for folks. Um, and then the last thing I want to say is we're doing a 
childbirth education for everyone workshop with reclaiming my theology for the patreon community um so that would be a great place to be like yeah i want to like decentralize birth knowledge from male doctors like let me let me learn about birth with uh sarah and brandy so um it'll be really fun we're just going to focus on all the like really cool parts and Finally, if people want to do some childbirth education with me, if you're pregnant and preparing for birth, I'm going to be offering a four-week class um, for folks starting at the end of February. And details for that will be on my Instagram and on my website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. As always, share, review, let people know that you're listening to the podcast, and please give us feedback at reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. Submit your questions. We're always wanting to get to know the community more and figure out how we can do a little bit better together. See y'all next week.